welcome back to another episode of Bloodthirsty Times. I'm your host, Emily. I'm Sharktober. I'm Big Willie Fresh. We're taking a dive down a mysterious circumstances hole, or should I say holes? Yeah, holes. Yeah. <laughs> if you know me, then this won't come as a shock, but I dislocated my ankle on Saturday and popped back in place myself, and that caused more damage. So, in other words, in she broke her foot Saturday mowing the yard while I, I was at the doctor hole. with my son. Yeah. So, let's not talk about it. Sorry. It's a so it's been an, to do. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a to do. And it's been an eventful weekend, and I'm a slacker. So, the fellas have been helping me out with my episode. And we are each doing our own short on mysterious disappearances this week. So, get these fellas some ibuprofen because I know their backs hurt from carrying my ass every week. And I truly appreciate it, guys. So, uh, without further ado, it's a good thing to turn like 80 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> Gonna, Turn on your shared locations. I've, I've taken eight <laughs> ibuprofen. So no. <laughs> Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. I'm overdosing on ibuprofen. Sorry about that. It's okay. I feel like that I takes a lot. I think I'll survive. I don't know. My liver might say you're, something else. You know that your talent, Tylenol will hurt your liver. Your, mm, um, I think not, I'm no. help either. Yeah, but I probably NSA, less, NSA's less damp- Fuck with your N- shit. NSAIDs? NSAIDs? Yeah, NSAIDs. NSAIDs are... NSAIDs? NSAIDs fuck with your stomach. Um, NSAIDs. All right. Well, we're just not going to argue over how you pronounce that because it's NSAIDs. NSAIDs. It's NSAIDs. It's anti-inflammatory. NSAIDs. Or NSAIDs. You you decide. Anyways. This is a great start to this episode. Welcome to Bloodthirsty Times. Yeah. Great start. Oh, and my my ending to the intro was turn on your shared locations. You didn't let me finish. Oh, sorry. (laughs) But... uh, uh, we do we have anything new to talk about at all? Is anything going on? Um, we're re-recording an episode pretty soon with um a guest that was amazing, and we have to re-record it because my shit fucked up in the middle of it, and we're excited about that. Chris can can't wait to actually, do that again. Actually, blame Emily on this one. Well, actually, no, you can't. You can blame my computer and you guys um, for giving me hand-me-down stuff. We can circumnavigate that and just blame you. I mean, why not? I like how you say, like, we gave you uh, hand-me-down stuff when if you just look at your square, none of that, except for the chair. Your, none of your, it is hand-me-down. Your personalized pink microphone with your pretty white and pink Oh, yes, headphones. that's my favorite. You're welcome. My, best, my bestie got me that. <laughs> Big Willy Fresh. That is definitely not a hand-me-down, ma'am. Definitely not. It's custom. I paid top custom. dollar. <laughs> and I thing, truly appreciate it. in front of your face, Octavio. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a yellow yeah. B-dong. I imagine that's what Trump's dick looks like. Why are you imagining Trump's dick? That's weird. Yeah, why? Anyways, this week we are... We're doing things <laughs> even more different than we've done in the past. I don't think um, about Biden. Yeah. I don't either. Sorry, old, old ass. Dick. I think. Oh, sorry, what's I, up? I think the only president's dick I've ever thought about was Obama's, just because he's black. 
I think JFK would be um, probably the only yeah. one because he walked so around much. like he walked around both, like he was so winging. No, okay, there was both a president who whipped his dick out. So you have to have not. You cannot say you've never thought about Clinton's dick. Everyone in the world is mm, no. Everyone, not necessarily because you wanted to, but just because it was brought up so much, you had to have thought about it. Yeah, I. He's. I thought more about Monica. I think he's got a little dick. I thought more about Monica. I actually thought about like if her knees hurt. Isn't that weird to like? I always wonder if she still had the dress. Duh. With the evidence. That shit's gonna go like. He's probably got a like, little millimeter, Peter. Okay, but who was the president thought. who actually whipped so. the dick out? I don't know. Google it. Herbert Hoover. That sounds Herbert. right. Wait, why did he do that? Or Eisenhower, um, one of those. He was making a point. He used to carry a big stick or some shit like that. Oh yeah. Uh, Excuse I think me. Eisenhower, I think Eisenhower is. Uh, Dwight D. Something about carrying. How big... Lyndon Johnson controls others Lyndon... around him using Johnson treatment. Johnson. Back the fuck up. You mean to tell me that there was a, a president, like actually sit, sitting president, who whipped his dick out and didn't like get. More talked about than I'm the 36th president of the United States of America, Lyndon B. Johnson, had a large penis, penis of which he was very <laughs> proud. He nicknamed it Jumbo. Oh, no way. Why? He, so he's, he, really he missed had the, the hog. He missed the boat on that Johnson joke he could have spent, you know? That I seems mean, his like name a says it all. Yeah. I mean, he could have, like, that could have been him. He was the reason for that, being called that. He, he could probably have taken is. That. We look back in history. Oh, here's the oh. context. So the expression refers to the legendary press conference where when asked why the U.S. continued to fight the Vietnam War, President Lyndon Johnson unzipped his fly, drew out his substantial organ, and declared, this, this is why. <laughs> no, he didn't. He did. He no, did. He I knew that, dude, I, he did. I promise. Man, there well, the audio said, this dude, is why we're jumping American presidencies are a wild story. <laughs> they almost Dude. every president has some kind of that is crazy, insane story. Every single one. Has there ever yeah. been like a perfect non-drama one? No, no. no. The closest we had to perfect was someone who did a good job, and then he got assassinated. So, Lincoln, hmm. JFK, JFK. Uh, no. uh, he was a politician, so. Tomato, yeah, tomato. He, Some people could be on the other side of. Uh, yeah, oh, I can see that. 100%, yeah, hundred percent. You're never going to find anyway. somebody who agrees that one president was perfect for everyone. Like I, I, I thought it was Lincoln because he abolished slavery. No, the, the Southerners hated him. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, because see. he abolished slavery. Duh. And and then someone hated enough to. <laughs> they had to clean their own fucking house. At one point, dude. At one point, someone hated Lincoln so much that they snuck up behind him and then shot him in the back of the head. Yeah, I thought they did it from across the. Like, well, no, it was during my American well, cousin. During well, the play, my like, American cousin. There was a grassy Knowles. Someone shot him in the head. There's a whole to do about that. I don't know. We want we to talk about so that. Far it, was, it, was, yeah, well, it was the government. This, it was the government. This episode I mean, is none of those were loose. mysterious disappearances, but you know. Guess what? There this episode, we're not talking about any of these things. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is has nothing free to do with content. You're welcome. Yes. Anyways. Okay, so we should starting or my start. No, I think I think it's you. You're gonna start okay. us yeah, out with whatever you got. So, do you know about Robert William Fisher? I, do I don't not. Even know the name. Okay, so this guy's a psychopath, and this <laughs> doesn't necessarily fall under mysterious circumstances. I don't know how I landed on it, but here I am. Here you are. Uh, I just felt that it was. What's a, his name again? I'm sorry. 
Robert William Fisher. Yeah, I want to see what this guy looks like. Yeah, while me you too. talk, um, he looks like a Lily White um, ex-military. Oh, he does. He looks like a um. Someone so this guy. <laughs> so this guy murdered his family, um, and I think it's mysterious because he then disappeared. Oh shit! Oh, that, family side or yeah, Bobby Fisher. Also, um, that was Mark Wahlberg's character in Shooter, I believe. Wait, really? Yeah, Bobby Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> Does he actually pay? Oh, no, he doesn't play this person. You're saying no, that's no. just the character's name. Okay. Yeah, it's his name. Coincidental at best. Correct Got me it. if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I know my cinema. In wow, this a... guy looks like a douchebag. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, he was. He's a oh, family he annihilator? He f- murdered his. He fucking slit his kids' throats from ear to ear. Oh my Ooh. god! I digress. Let's start. From- Dude, family annihilators are super interesting to me. Like the reasons why it is. I, there's a whole like subject matter. Like people study this shit day in day out, man. Of just people who murder, murder their family, and why it's it's in such it's such it's a niche, the- but like the the magnitude of the crimes are just beyond anything we can imagine as people and there's like a whole whole people devoted to figuring the shit out it's 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 insane i mean it's yeah it's it's one thing to murder random people right Mm -hmm. those that go on like shooting sprees and they're maybe uh racially motivated and they Mm -hmm. kill random people Mm -hmm. but it's another thing to kill your own offspring right to murder your own kid who came from you, that's a whole nother level of mental sickness. It is. Yeah. A lot I mean, of it is, right? Yeah, uh, when you dive into it, it's it, there, there's a lot of mental issues and sickness regarding these people that, you know, genocide. They kill their their offspring and then they kill themselves. And it's, <laughs> oh my God. it's, so, it's, it's so terrible. I just read something and I don't want to say anything until you talk about it, but holy fuck. Like, I did not know this is possible about, I'm so interested in this. Yeah. Like about something about him, but I'm going to wait to say it in case you're actually going to talk about it. This one little detail. I just didn't know that this thing was possible. So I'm very interested in to hear this. So, yeah, we're going to start, um, with his beginnings. Um, born April 13th, 1961 in Brooklyn. Um, and he had three offspring. So it was himself and he had, um, two sisters. Uh, the parents divorced in 76. And after that himself and his two sisters went to live with their father in Arizona. Um, they went through high school and I think they like to pin the divorce and the, the effects it had on why he did what he did could be. I mean, like that, I said, that this, makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it could set up his like instance, for instance, for me personally, I have divorced parents. Emily has divorced parents, but I don't know if it spark it did for Emily, but for me, I don't want to go through that. You know what I mean? I, I see what my parents went through. And if, if you get to that point um, where you do feel like there is no other choice, like it could spark this, 
in a lot of, like I said, in the, in the studies of family annihilators or familicide, whatever you want to call it, a lot of yeah, it I think is I said, because, I think I said genocide, but that's a race. So that is, yeah, it's that, a whole was, wiping was, out of a whole, yeah. That I wasn't spoke the right out word. Turn, but y- yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yes, I think it's familicide. Paternicide? Yeah, yeah, familicide or paternicide. paternicide. Yeah. Yeah, paternicide is where you kill your dad. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so like Excuse being me? thinking you're a failure as a father who is supposed to keep a family together and provide for your family is a, a catalyst for a lot of these family annihilators. Like money is one of the most striving like reasons that people do this and you know, they feel like a failure. So they, they almost feel like they're saving their family from their failures by not being alive anymore. And it's, it's absolutely just insane. Literally is the only word I can think of. It's, it's insanity. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I think it's, I um, kind of i'm not gonna say funny but it's um a really stark reality that all three of us came from a broken family yeah is that, is that the in new normal very different stages also oh, it's, I, think it's, I think in our age where we're at now i think that was um i don't want to say the norm but i mm-hmm. think there's a lot of people in our age range that can't uh, that come from a broken family it's crazy that that's a reality considering I, i'm guarantee you will has this uncle or even someone a male uh older male in their life who has said hey don't get married don't fucking do it <laughs> you know I, all my uncles were like hey because, you know i would see them get, that because i i would see them have like this little like tiff with their wife and like in secret and just like you can see it on his face so he's just pissed off but he's trying to have a good time with with his family and he just looks over like mijo don't get yeah. married eh? <laughs> hey marriage dog like don't do it okay <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you can't tell, oh, we, this is another off-the-cuff episode. We wrote yeah. some things down, but for the most oh, part... this is very off-the-cuff. Very off-the-cuff. I think overall sure. the point that I, this whole conversation I was trying to start to make was <laughs> divorce can make a man feel like a failure. And when you experience it as a child, yes. you see that failure and it can transfer to the children. Yes. And that feeling and, can stick. And My point. I started we, the whole fucking conversation. Dude, I didn't even hear that, that one that, part, but that, I... Agree. This was a tangent in itself, but we're back to really like Robert William Fisher. Okay, Sorry. we're gonna talk about this fucking asshole. Okay, yes. Um, because his parents got divorced, um, a lot of his friends said that he was very bitter about it, and he didn't take it well. And I think that carried over into his normal life outside of being a kid right mm-hmm. like he carried that into his adulthood now robert fisher um enlisted in the navy tried to be part of the seals program uh, but he failed but he was an avid outdoorsman hunter and a fisherman and worked as a firefighter in california but was forced to retire after a career-ending back injury he then moved his family to Arizona and then started his career in the medical field and started as a surgical catheter technician and also as a uh, RT or respiratory therapist. Um, he worked as a weed sprayer for a time in the late 80s. But overall, like all of his em- previous employees uh, said that he was a quiet man and he suffered from serious back pain, but overall was a good employee. Um, and at the time of 
the murders, which we'll talk about. He was a surgical tech at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Now, Fisher married in 87 to Mary Cooper, and they described him, and this is people looking from the outside in, um, as cruel and distant and also a control freak towards his whole family. Was this, and, was this stated after the fact? Yes. People who weren't part of his family could see that from the outside? Yes. Because if you can see it from the outside, that means the inside's a lot oh, more vicious terrible. than that. Because usually you put on this facade to the outside world. You know what I mean? Like you might be a monster controlling dickhead inside your home, but usually when you walk out the door, you're just like, hey, neighbor, how's it going? You know? Yeah. You better, better cut your grass. A, yeah. You put on a facade that everything is fine and dandy. Yeah. We have a perfect family. And anyone on the outside looking in wouldn't say anything else. Right. The, the fact family. that they the fact that but they went as far as they that they met, commented on it says they a lot. know that looking in you're a control freak. God, living in that house must have been a it, fucking nightmare. It, every day must have been uh, horrible. A nightmare. But that's what happened, right? And himself and his wife they they would fight about sex and money, and uh, when Mary took a job. She told her friends that it was a security fund. So, what? Yes. So hmm. she only got a job for a quote unquote security fund. Now, <clears throat> they had kids, and Fisher, Robert Fisher, was embarrassed that his son, Bobby, did not like to hunt or fish, and once tried to teach him and his daughter, Brittany, how to swim by throwing them off a boat. <laughs> oh, man, that doesn't scar anybody. So it cost any kind of psychological problems. No, That's no, but uh, here's what he said. Hey, they were crying and Brittany was screaming and he pulled them back in the boat and he said, now there, how's that? That's how you teach your kids to swim. You throw them in a fucking lake. He also wouldn't allow the walls in the house to be painted anything other than white. And there was only a small number of pictures that were actually allowed on the walls. And several times, Mary's mother uh, made some like quilts and stuff, but mm. she was not allowed to hang them up and had to store them in the closet. And then Fisher would go on to say, hey, isn't it time you got rid of this stuff? Dang. I mean, yeah. Red flag after red flag. He's just throwing them in the field. Just kept just nonstop throwing them. So Fisher being a avid outdoorsman, hunter, and a fisher in itself, uh, even into his young adult life, his friends noticed him exhibiting disturbing behavior on hunting trips and other outdoor activities. And in one particular case, after killing an elk, he began smearing the blood on his face. And at least on one occasion, he snuck up behind a family that was picnicking and emptied his gun into the air. Why? Why? Be because he's a psychopath. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Uh, oh, my bad. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Did I make that part clear yet? No, I guess not, man. I, w yeah. I wasn't listening to that first part where you said this is a story about a psychopath. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, he's a psychopath. And several years before this, he shot a stray pit bull and claimed that he shot it because it attacked his Labrador. But police maintain that he orchestrated the encounter because he wanted to shoot the dog. Wow. So the, the pit bull did attack the Labrador, but he caused it. Yes. Essentially, okay. he wanted to kill the dog, and so he 
couldn't made a reason. He created a reason. Exactly. According to some of Fisher's friends, uh, he spoke of committing suicide in 1998 and discussed his um, inhibitions about the the marriage. He was unhappy with the marriage. um, And he met a prostitute in a massage parlor and fretted that Mary would find out because of a UTI. And he actually had this UTI into like December of 2000 and figured she's going to know. He got a UTI from a prostitute. And so when you have a UTI, that immediately means, hey, I had a yeah that's what i'm like an sti maybe no you okay so for males it's very rare i don't want to say difficult if we're just doing normal dude stuff and not fucking random people um we don't get utis in general Mm -hmm. it's very Mm -hmm. difficult because you it's a bacterial infection in your urethra Mm -hmm. and so if you are having sex with someone that's unclean or in a condition that's unclean, then you get a UTI. Oh, so I mean, so okay. his mindset was I have UTI. It's pretty known that I have UTI because I am screaming when I piss because I've had one and it, it's like pissing razor blades. It's f- fucking terrible. So you had sex with a sex worker? I know. I See, didn't. that's what I'm saying. Like, even if you had the UTI, how would she just assume that yeah, he has sex with a sex worker? That's where that's my problem here. Is like, okay, because maybe had, just his paranoia. I had sex in a spa, right? So I got the spa water up in my dick hole. Wait and a that's second. What caused the UTI? Is this a literal? No, it's, this, this is, is a real story. That's his telling my story of how I got a UTI. Okay. Yeah, I had sex in the spa and the spa water got in my dick hole. Good, but if you're in a monogamous relationship where you're not having sex in a spa you shouldn't get a uti right i just feel like though if you're a dude it would be a little bit easier to conceal you could just not you could it, just get an antibiotic and it'd be taken it, care of it's not like an sti or an std i mean you that's a little bit yeah, more you're hard pissing, you're pissing razor blades all of a sudden you're like ha ha ha, ha, ha. well then i just buy a kidney stone okay and then you go to the doctor and the doctor's like it's not kidney stones you yeah, have don't, take don't take your wife don't take your wife don't take your wife hey <laughs> Don't bring her over. <laughs> Anyways, let's get to the murders. Let's do it. So one of their neighbors heard a loud argument coming from inside their home at about 10 p.m. on April 9, 2001. And about 10 hours later, it exploded into flames. Now, police theorized that the murders took place between 9.30 p.m. and 10.15 p.m. And Fisher was spotted at about 10.43 at an ATM camera where he withdrew $280. So this was after the murders. Hmm. At that ATM camera, he was seen in his wife's Toyota 4Runner. And it is possible that Fisher later returned to the house to commit the murders, but police believe that they had already taken place because he was using her car and then he fled in that vehicle. That makes sense. Now, now how did the murders take place? Well, his wife, Mary, was shot in the back of the head and his two kids, Brittany and Bobby, their throats were slashed from ear to ear. How old were they? Uh, 12 something young before their teens so i think 12 and like eight or something like that boy and girl yes yeah bobby and Brittany. so son and daughter yeah but slit their throat from ear to ear they were 12 and 10 she was there you go 12 and he was 10 
was close. As I was, I was asking uh, how old they were because maybe the son was a little older and maybe trying to fight, which would have made this way more sad. I think he was probably probably too young to really put up a fight. If he did, I think it was um, basically in their sleep. God, and Ugh. just ear to ear, Ugh. throat slash. Gross. So at eight forty-two a.m., the house exploded because he set fire to it. Um, firefighters immediately responded, but the explosion was strong enough to collapse the front brick wall and rattle the frames of neighboring houses for a half mile away. Holy crap! Yeah. Uh, neighbors next door tried to stem the the fire with garden hoses, um, and the flame was um, said to be about 20 feet high. Now, there was a series of smaller explosions, and they thought it was because of either rifle ammunition or paint cans, but it forced the firefighters to keep their distance away from the house. But it also caused injuries, minor injuries, to one of the firefighters. Now, the gas line from the back of the house is furnace had been pulled and the accumulating gas from that uh, gas line was ignited by a candle that Fisher had allegedly lit and then waiting for the gas to accumulate and ascend the flames hours after being lit. So essentially he he knew knew that he was going to cause a massive fucking explosion, but it gave him about a 10 hour lead uh, to evade law enforcement. And it's quite a, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It was like he set it up to be a, like a slow burn. So the house would catch on fire after a slow burn with the gas line that he would light on fire and then he could skedaddle and then just eventually fucking explode because it's going to travel back to the wherever the gas line's coming from. Um, but it gave him about 10 hours. And the decision to have the house explode is believed to have been an attempt by Fisher to conceal evidence of crimes and possibly to cause police to believe that he died in the fire. Now, the burned bodies of women um, and his two kids, um, they found them. So Mary was 38, Brittany was 12, and Bobby was 10. And investigators theorized that Fisher murdered his family because he felt threatened by Mary's intention to divorce him and did not want Brittany and Bobby to go through what he did as a child, cycling um, back to that, yeah. that mental trauma. He's obviously troubled regardless. Like we've we've established that that's not up for question. But like the planning of the I don't know, like making it so isn't fire what what does it what does it say about people who um when they're murdering people they do it by fire? Like what's that term? Person? No, like what's the Trial know, like most emotional way to kill someone or whatever or the least with personal the with them the having least. both this so is the least? Yeah, that would be the least personal is just lighting one fire. Okay. You're not present during the but he slit their throat, so yeah, yeah. So that's still, I guess, there's, I guess there's if no we're like, going in that hierarchy of how terrible something is, it's strangulation, knife, beating somebody, and then gunfire, and then a fire. Yeah. But, but if I mean, you, just like if it's, if you, you know, just an anger thing. throat from ear to ear. Yeah. You were there for it. And like, I get the whole thing about the him not wanting, you know, like his children to go through what he went through or whatever. I'm just curious as to why, like he was so the slitting of the throats and the blowing up or whatever, like just if the trauma really wasn't aimed for the kids, I guess, for the hatred, I guess. That so did, I had to, did you find, did they find him? No. You said? Nope. Do they, I mean, do they, they know where done. he is? They, they, so he escaped. So on July 19th of that year, uh, they issued a state, uh, warrant arrest in Phoenix uh, to charge him with first degree murder and one kind of arson, um, but they haven't caught him. 
And every time that someone had reported him, uh, it's either been inconclusive or false information. Dang. This is what I was so, saying that's nuts so to they, me about this case. They haven't, they, they, they haven't caught him. And he's the only person, I think, to ever be removed from the FBI's most wanted list. Yes. So he, he was, was on the top 10 most wanted, uh, was replaced by Yuland Odene, uh, which was the leader of the MS-13 in Honduras. Um, but because of the extensive publicity that Fisher's case received during its nearly 20 years on the list and has not resulted in his successful location and or capture, the case no longer fulfills that requirement. But despite his removal from the top 10 list, Fisher remains a wanted fugitive. He was number 475. How, how do you get away with that? I, I don't understand. I think he's dead. They think he's like in Florida, somewhere in the South, dirty South. I don't Shout think out. that he could be in the U.S. It's crazy that you can murder your wife, your two kids, and get away scot-free. Yeah. I mean, that's they, unfortunately... They who, it's, like, it's, it's not a who did it. They know who fucking did it. Right. They can't that's, catch the fucking guy that did it. They know what he looks like, his name. They have his fingerprints. They have everything. And they can't fucking catch him. Uh, I can, off the top of my head, think of three other times this has happened where a guy kills his family, never found again. Where did, it happens I mean, more than you think. Have you ever heard of a case then that's similar, like, in the same situation, murders a family, and then he just met, like goes missing for many, 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 many years, but then he's eventually found? And where do they find yes, him? Yes, there is. Um, a, he's. It's a very famous case. Uh, I know Bailey has talked about him before, um, but he... <laughs> so he uh the guy murders his whole family like he's very elaborate with it and he moves away changes his name and everything moves to this town in like ohio or some shit uh probably not that's probably not where he ended up but something like that and people ended up finding him because his case 30 years later was on america's most wanted on that tv show and they his likeness like hey that looks like my neighbor whatever his fucking name is. And they're like, Hey, here's a tip. I don't know if it's going to amount to anything. Cause it's just me thinking he looks like him, but here it is. And they investigated. It's the f same fucking guy. It was 30 years later. They found him like 2000 miles away. They found him. Damn. Of Boy, course, that this was, was like, like this was early eighties or whatever it was. So it was easier to get away because cameras weren't as prevalent, but you know, it, it does happen. They do find people like this. But Damn. it's crazy mm. that in today's age, where we're at now, still can't find him. Yeah, that's, and then, like, if you go online and you look at, like, the the pictures where they do, like, you know, age progression and stuff like that, or, like, you know, with this color hair, no hair, long mm. hair, whatever, and how, I guess, different, you still would not, he's not a guy who you'd walk by and be like, oh, my God, that that's the guy. No matter what color hair he has, no hair, long hair, short hair, whatever. I would never look at that dude and say, Oh, that's a memorable face. Like he just doesn't—he doesn't stand yeah. out at all. And yeah, I mean, that's lucky him. But traditional fucking bald white guy could be me. Yeah, and like when I pulled Who the knows? picture when he first said his name, and I said he looks like he is a wannabe seal, and then you said that he tried to be a seal. Yeah. So that's like what's his name? Look. Who's the who's the famous 
super fucking rich guy. Blazarian? Blazarian, thank you. So that's what I'm like thinking in my head. He has the mindset. Like, where do you get off where you thought you, because he tried to go through Navy SEAL training and failed out. Mm. You're there during the Vegas shooting, the Harvest uh, Route 91 shooting, to tell the cop, hey, give me your gun. I'm going to, I'll help. What kind of fucking cojones do you have because you were, were a failed out Navy SEAL? He's looking for some kind of glory. Yes. So for my story, I decided since National Hispanic Heritage Month starts on September 15th, I chose to do it on a Chicano activist who mysteriously disappeared in 1974. But without him, Mexican-American history would look a lot different. But the story starts in 1971 when a writer for Rolling Stone by the name of Hunter S. Thompson published a story called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, a savage journey to the heart of the American dream which had been printed in two parts in the November issue of Rolling Stone and in 1972 would be combined into its own novel, which was uh, in 1998 turned into Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, featuring Johnny Depp as Hunter S. Thompson, although in the book the character's name is Raul Duke, Raul Duke and along for the ride is um, Raul Duke's attorney known as Dr. Gonzo, played by Benicio Del Toro. And aside from Dr. Gonzo, in the book, he refers to him as uh, the 300-pound Samoan. What oh, makes um, Hunter as... He is. They didn't portray that in the movie. No, they, it was very offensive. <laughs> so they yeah. didn't... But in the book, he's referred to as a 300-pound Samoan. Okay. Uh, but what makes Hunter S. Thompson's storytelling interesting is that Hunter created what's called gonzo journalism, which is journalism about a subject, but it's done from the point of view of the reporter and is done as with the main character, the reporter, experiencing the subject matter firsthand. And that's known as gonzo journalism. And that all started with Hunter S. Thompson. And I know oh, so you're, that's you're, where that term comes from. Yes, from Hunter. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, he's very, very influential in all kinds of writing circles. Really big deal. I mean, obviously, you, you lit up as soon as I mentioned his name. Like, you, like the oh, movie yeah. is a huge part of a lot of people's lives. Uh, it's, it's an incredible movie. Um, it didn't. Johnny it was, Depp did a fucking great job being. Benicio del Toro. I was wondering why you were watching that. Um, that was like the little clips or whatever when I was coming over to the computer. And saw you watching those, and all I could see it, I couldn't hear what you were watching, but I could see just them in that car. I didn't realize that that's what you were writing yours about, or that it had anything to do with what you were writing about. Yeah, I was just, I just wanted to watch the movie. I couldn't find it <laughs> uh, without paying for it anyway. So, uh, yeah. So, why am I telling you about Hunter S. Thompson and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Well, that's because Dr. Gonzo, a.k.a. the 300-pound Samoan, was based on a very real person named Oscar Zeta Acosta, whose nickname in real life was the Brown Buffalo. Now, I'm going to be honest here. I didn't know any of this shit before I looked into it. But what I found was incredible because it turns out Oscar was immensely important to the Chicano movement in the late 60s and early 70s. He was an accomplished author. He was a lawyer. He, he was just as crazy as Hunter had portrayed him as Dr. Gonzo. Really? He, yeah. That, uh, so what we'll get into later, but there was a whole lawsuit about the movie. And uh, so it's <laughs> the, I'll just talk about it later, but he, his problem wasn't with how he was portrayed as a all consuming drug and alcohol fueled maniac, but he was, he took offense to something else. 
Um, so Oscar Zeta Acosta was born on April 8th, 1935 to parents Manuel and Juanita Acosta in El Paso, Texas. And as, as a family, they moved to San Francisco where Oscar's dad ended up being drafted for World War II, which meant that uh, little, I don't even think he was 10 years old yet, uh, Oscar was the man of the house now. And then in his teens, he ended up joining the Air Force where he served four years before he was discharged. After his time in the military, Oscar had decided it was time to do what he wanted. And that's when he went on to study creative writing at San Francisco State University. So after his time in the military, he's like, I want to be a writer. That's what he wanted. That, that was his main thing. He was a creative that, person. So that's like... Um... Goddamn references. That'd be sick. What's the movie? Of what? The World War II movie. Um Saving Private Ryan. No. With the the guy that's a Lee Ermy. Who? Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. God damn it. Thank you. So Full Metal Jacket, where one of the people they bring in is a journalist mm -hmm. into the platoon. You never saw that, yeah. Emily? Mm -mm. No, she doesn't watch good movies. Uh, no, I... You need to I watch Full, actually, Metal, Full Metal Jacket. I don't even... I don't I think thought she's it was Fear a, and Loathing. I want to say that I have, but I don't remember seeing the whole thing. But Full Metal Jacket, I did want to watch that and i think i was going to watch it but i thought it was like a spoof movie is there a spoof yeah, of that movie there is stripes probably stripes yeah. okay yeah the movie stripes I thought it was like one of those bill like murray. scream type no, things bill, you know that yeah, yeah bill murray not another stripes movie. but no full metal jacket's an actual like serious very serious it's stanley kubrick it's stanley kubrick um and the beginning is a little um humorous until the fact where he kills himself private gomer pile Gilmer Pyle uh, shoots himself in the head in the bathroom, and then after that, it's on. It's, grim. Straight... It's, gr it's grim as shit. Is that so the one where grim. they're naked in it? Mm, well, or is it a different war movie where they're like... A stripe where he's like peeking through the hole no. and the chick's naked? No, it's like yeah. they're they're like... It's a whole bunch of them, but I was well, just... Seeing well, seeing as how you don't really yeah, watch so, movies, do you... So bro, going back to Fear and Loathing... In Las Vegas, if you know, do you know anything about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? No. So it's Johnny Depp's character, whose name is Raul Duke in the movie, but he's actually Hunter S. Thompson, just a different name um, mm -hmm. in the movies, Johnny Depp. And then Benicio Del Toro is Dr. Gonzo, his attorney. Oh, and he's constantly saying, is so he's so good. He's so good in the movie. But I in the Benicio. movie, he's constantly saying, like, as your attorney, I advise you to buy a motorcycle. As your attorney, I advise you to take three ounces of that mescaline as your attorney i advise you to snort two lines of coke like and dr gonzo what? gets more yeah dude dr gonzo gets more and more just muffed up like completely just insane and he tries to like he's like singing along to a song in the bathtub and he tells johnny depp to like throw the the radio in the sh in the bath with him because he's losing his mind they take drugs all over vegas and are just acting a fool they, there's one part where they they inhale what's that is it mescaline or the thing that you take a rag uh ether ether yeah. no that ether they take ether uh and they're inhaling it and ether inhibits your motor function so they're walking around trying to keep their bearings all bow-legged and shit and it's it's a it's a but whole ether is alcohol so you're in, you inhaled alcohol yeah so it's a it's a whole what the fuck there's so much going on so much that movie's a great, a great movie. movie. I like Blow. Is that Blow's a good movie too? 
Yeah, I'm not. That's mild. Uh, that's, that's mild. It's similar, but it's not. It just happens mm. to have Johnny Depp. Right. So. Yeah. It's like watching like Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, oh, Johnny Depp's in it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's similar because Johnny Depp is in it. <laughs> because Johnny that's Depp's it. in it. That's the only oh, thing. And also, in the, in Pirates, he is walking funny. He is. Yeah, but he walks dude, I. I feel like fear and loathing is almost like anxiety inducing if you watch it. Oh, it is. It's an intense movie from start to finish, but just the road trip there is like (laughs) with the bats uh, and and Tobey Maguire. (laughs) Wait, Tobey Maguire's in it? (laughs) Yeah, he's just in it for a couple minutes. He's very young. It's a fucking ride. Yeah. To say the least. Emily, I'm like it. Fucking fix yourself, dude. I, I try to watch it. I, I try to watch it. There's nowhere unless you want to rent it from somewhere, which I didn't want to. Do we? No, she well, brought what about a pillow Amazon down, Plus? like her foot. Yeah, hurt I, I checked everywhere. No, was her foot hurt? Oh um, no, I was resting it. I have it elevated the other way, so I was facing this way now, so I could turn. I'm just giving you shit. Well, anyways, <laughs> uh, after Oscar graduated from San Fran, he decided that he was actually going to become a lawyer instead. Um, he did that by taking night classes and finally in 1966 at the age of 31 he passed the bar exam the very next year Oscar began his activist path and became an anti-poverty attorney in East Oakland and it was at this time that Oscar met Hunter S. Thompson for the first time the year after that he left his job in East Oakland and moved south to Los Angeles to join the Chicano movement now, a little bit of history here. Uh, we all know that I love history, so I tried to condense as much as possible. If you're not familiar with what was going on in 1968 Los Angeles, well, let me tell you because it's it's a lot. I don't, I don't know. Tell it's me. East L- it lost 1968 East LA, to be more specific. Um, okay. And also, just for clarity, by the way, all that Chicano means is Mexican-American peoples like me. Like, I was born here, but my parents were born in Mexico. And the thing is, it actually started out as a slur against my people. And it's just like, hey, we took that shit back. That's our word now. You can't use it. <laughs> so, so is it still calling someone a fucking Chicano was a, yeah, it used like to be. a bad word? It, it used to be a, because it's like people like me, like I'm trapped between two worlds. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you I'm not the, fully Mexican. I'm not fully white, American. You're a white Mexican yeah. and they called you yeah. fucking Chicano. And I think it was actually the, uh, Mexicans who used it as a slur. Uh, I don't even think it was white people. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. Yeah, we didn't Chicken Wasn't it like a lesser Binche, than Binche, Yeah, it was, it was like we're, You're not we're not as Mexican fully. Yeah, we're not as Mexican as the next guy. But you know, I don't see it that way. I think we're just as Mexican, just a different type, I guess. Like, like I, I consider myself Chicano. That's what I identify as as Chicano. Um, I was trying to equate it to like something else, like that's offensive to some, but not. Um, I think in your area it'd be like the Cubanos that come into Florida and shit. Mm-hmm. And then they make their they way to Mississippi. They don't go by Cubano. They're Cubano. But they're not actually Cubanos. No? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, right. in, in March of 1968, what had happened was Chicano students of the Los Angeles Unified School District had decided they had enough of the inequality happening at their schools. So they rallied together and staged a walkout. 
Now, they had no idea they would get the support they ended up getting. Because, and um, actually, they had so much support. The newspapers said it, was, it wasn't even a walkout. It was the East L.A. blowout over, you know, it, over 10,000 students protested in East L.A. alone. 10,000 students so just so they can have this every student every student out. every student uh, every what? chicano student every mexican-american walked out in protest and what they were actually protesting was just the simple fact of having the same fair chance at a quality education they were underfunded severely they were not getting the same opportunities as these other areas <laughs> other school districts of white folks so they were just protesting and things we take for granted every day, the fact that we can send our kids to school and know that they're getting the same education as, as somewhere else, they had to literally fight for it. Literally. 10,000 strong on this one day. Damn. That's fucking so, crazy. Yeah. I apologize for sending ignorant, but what is the significance that you keep specifying East LA? Like, what is... East LA. We're talking uh, like Compton. The East oh. LA area. So just like the lower, like poverty, like you were saying or whatever, but like, it's just the. Yeah. Just so it's, sure it's, I, we've talk, I've talked to you about this in East, not East in private, but like, like yeah, East LA is like when you think of like the hood, it's East LA. It's, and then there's it's, South it's, South LA, which is so South East LA is like more brown. South LA is more brown hood. South uh, East LA is more brown hood. South LA is more black hood. Yeah, South um, LA is have like the the Torrance. Um. Watts Watts area um, mm -hmm. like Long Beach you're, you're dipping into South LA but the East LA is like the Comptons the Linwood oh, okay because I just remember us having past stories where it was specified like South Central was bad yeah South Central is like Compton hood like, hood yeah hood to hood. like a T it, it's South Central is like Compton Inglewood area. Yeah, I remember this. Name yeah, too. and so like I've talked this like we just it's kind of LA's naturally segregated into race essentially. I mean, there's mm -hmm. Chinatown, little little Tokyo, uh, little Korea. Then you have like uh, we think of Olvera like Street type of thing. So everything has its own neighborhood. It's kind of like and and actually at this time is when the Chicano movement really started was where you had like people wearing zoot suits and gangs first started because they were protecting their neighborhood. Yeah. They banged they banged as a way of defending their homes and their peoples. It wasn't just Yeah, they were being you know, encroached by like so think of like downtown LA as like the center, right? So if you think of like downtown LA, that's the center. So east, south, west, north, north being like the the valley, uh south being your uh Santa Dominguez, uh, Compton, Linwood area, East being like the Whittier, and then West being like North Hollywood and stuff like that. Yeah, and West being like a little North, bit of fancier, North Hollywood, a little bit fancier. Santa Monica, Beverly Hills. That's the West side of LA. Yeah, but DTLA is like the center point. So mm -hmm. whenever we say like, oh, South LA, East LA, it's all from the the center being downtown. downtown. Mm -hmm. is the, the center point. And so East LA, it tends to be like East, More like brown. Southeast. Yeah. Southeast is like your Linwood, Compton, yeah. uh, Brown neighborhood, gang area. The yeah, West so side is time, being like that, that 
the higher front, like the the mm-hmm. rich people, the Santa Monicas, the <clears throat> we're rich. What you think people. of what do you think of when you think of LA and like fancy people? But anyways, so like I said, he these ten thousand students, um, they protested, and the thing is. Uh, Uncle Sam or the authorities in power, they don't really like when you stand up for yourself. They're just not a fan of it. They're just not, you, you just take what you get and don't throw a fit type mm-hmm. of people. So they don't like it when you stand up and rise together. No. So, no way. Oscar had actually left East Oakland and came down to uh, East LA and he went down there to join the cause by becoming the lawyer of there was 13 men who were accused of starting the blowouts, which uh, it turns out they figured out it started at Garfield High School. Um, and what's even shadier is they were probably secretly, East LA, right? Yeah, yeah, it's East LA. So they, they, uh, these 13 men were secretly indicted. It was kind of like hush, kind of like we're, these are we're singling these 13 men out as the, the focal point and the starting point of this massive protest. And so these 13 men came to be known as the East Side Trece or the East Side 13. And they were secretly, like I said, on June 1st, they were secretly indicted in 1968 on charges of conspiracy. And of of course, you you spoke Spanish. So like these at Trece, Trece in in Spanish is 13. (laughs) In case you didn't know. And of course, this saga is rife with political and police corruption that I just, I don't have the time to get into right now. But suffice it to say that they were subjected to the same bullshit that a lot of black and brown people who are a force for change received. And we'll just leave it at that. You can take from that what you want, but historically, the evidence is there. You're saying white people, like myself, held these people down? Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So the good thing, <laughs> so the good thing is that Oscar was devoted and talented enough to have successfully defended the Eastside Trece, which led to him getting more Chicano cases, which also, which he also won, and this led to Oscar becoming the important Chicano activist he's known as today. After a lot of success in the East LA uh, Chicano community, he decided to try to change things from the ground up which meant he was going to run for sheriff. And as part of his campaign promises, he vowed to get rid of the current sheriff's department. Uh, as you can imagine, he lost to the incumbent who was promising more of the same. So not a surprise there. Um, what? Well, I don't really know how to say anything about that without being offensive, but. How would you not be offensive? What's your what well, thoughts I mean, you have? Like he lost to the incumbent, but at the same time, they're secretly indicting people and people are supportive of that. Like, yes, because they're brown people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's running for sheriff and in his campaign as running for sheriff, he's like, Hey, if I win, I'm going to clear out the sheriff department the way it is now and start over and the incumbent was the already sheriff. Yeah. So he like, no, was like, Hey, no, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And so I was like, yeah, we're going to stick with that guy. Cause the Mexican guy over there is trying to change things. Oh man. If they only had changed, <laughs> Dude. I think we wouldn't have as terrible the LA County Sheriff's department as we do now with the gangs. Oh, Can you God. imagine if he had won though, if he just had uh. the backing? 
This I, was in 68. I, I this is in 1968. Dive. I don't even want to dive into LA County Sheriff's. How do we get to that timeline? Uh, like, how do we just switch over to where uh, Oscar wins talking, that? Because we're talking about the sheriff. No, no. How do we switch to that? Like, let's, if we could just okay. transfer over, like, let's, let's, um, what's that called? Uh, the Mandela effect. Let's Mandela ourselves over to our Oscar wins. Okay. And see so how, I, see how, see what LA looks like after that. So I think if they had a pro, um, Hispanic sheriff, um, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the same problems that we do have currently within LA County sheriffs. There'd be problems. I just don't like, know what they would yeah. I can't imagine that world. I, I think the sheriff, if he was sheriff, it would cut down on all the dumb bullshit that is currently happening within the sheriff's department. Yeah, because he was straight up like, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all of you and reshape the department. Yeah. That's going it, to happen. That's not like a, hey, you might lose your job if I become no, sheriff. No, no, you, you're, you're, you're fired done. if I get if I get voted in here. Yeah. We're, re, we're doing all of it. We're redoing start to finish. Everyone's gone and we're going to start the fuck over. But he didn't win for yeah. obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the LA County Sheriff's got a very, very bad reputation for tons of reasons. Like, granted, it's because they fucked up so it's, many times. They're doing it to themselves. And I'm going to talk about some more and fucked if up shit that happens. If you don't have a sheriff that wants to step in and say, guess what? There's no gangs within the LA County Sheriff's Department because there are gangs. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's you have, I think you, that's common you, knowledge. You essentially yeah. have the street gangs within a police department. You but have a gang within I a think they're worse department. Than street oh, they're, they're, they got way more power oh, than any gang I've ever seen. Absolutely. Yes. Because guess yeah. what? They always have a gun. And they're always well, not like, even that. Can trust that gangbanger over there, this gangbanger over here yeah. with the badge. They, they, guess what? They got a buddy behind him. Yeah, it's on like, the I same see fucking, It's on the same boat. Yeah, and that is terrifying. Yeah. So luckily, though, with all the the cases he was winning in the courts, uh, defending Chicano peoples and defending uh, injustices, like being accusing these thirteen men of sparking whatever the fuck they were or the conspiracy that they were charging him so he's doing a good job he has momentum he doesn't let this slow him down he loses to the incumbent but he's like you know what fuck it let's just keep rolling so on august 29 1970 east la was host to the national chicano moratorium march where over twenty thousand chicanos protested the vietnam war now, like a lot of current protests all over the country with so many people gathered in one place to try and make a change, the LAPD decided, or I guess the LA sheriffs, well, combined probably. Yeah. So the LA enforcement decided it was time to turn this peaceful protest into total fucking chaos and widespread violence, where tons of people were arrested and three people died. And one of those people was journalist Ruben Salazar. So oh. Oscar had reached out to Hunter be- S. I'm going to be the devil's advocate on this one. Sure. I don't think it was law enforcement that created the um, chaos. I think it was people within, which happens all the time in our current protests, is there is a group of people that want to change it into a violent protest. I don't think law enforcement starts it. 
they obviously they don't help. Granted, I'll tell you what, Buckaroo, this time you're wrong because it was proven that they did. <laughs> oh shit! Oh shit! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fuck. Well. Yeah. Sorry, I am wrong <laughs> for once. So anyway, so anyways, uh, I was wrong. Continue dozens of your people story. were arrested. <laughs> Three people died. And like I said, one of these people was journalist Ruben Salazar. Oscar had reached out to Hunter S. Thompson, who is a well-respected writer, uh, journalist. His word carries weight. So he's like, hey, Hunter, I need you to write a piece about the suspicious death of Ruben Salazar, since you can reach a wider audience than I could as a Chicano uh, journalist or writer, whatever you want to call me. You reach, you're, fucking, you're with Rolling Stone. You reach all kinds of people. Like Rolling Stone's a massive, massive... Uh, um, paper or, or or magazine whatever you want to call it oh it reaches so, like the whole nation every nation that don't even fucking subscribe to that magazine get the magazine rolling stone yeah. everyone knows about rolling stone and at this time this is 1970 uh um hunter had written about uh the hell's angels already like he's he's known to write these you know uh fear and loathing hadn't come out yet but um, you know, he's known for this these in-depth pieces that he, these gonzo style journalism that he established and he's respected for it. So he's like, look, I need you to write about this Ruben Salazar. His death is super suspicious. Now the official LAPD explanation is that Ruben was accidentally hit in the face with a tear gas projectile fired what by an fuck? officer. <laughs> accidentally. Accidentally. Yeah. With, wait, with the yeah. piece of it, like not the actual. No, like, with the whole it? canister. You take the canister from the face from a fucking grenade like they just launcher. Shot it at him? Yeah, yeah, directly at his face. Yes, yeah. but that was oh accidental. It will fucking kill you. It killed him. Uh, so that's the official line from the LAPD: is that I accidentally shot my tear gas projectile into his face, and then he died because of it. The thing was, the protests on the streets is where they were happening on the street. Ruben Salazar was actually inside the Silver Dollar Bar. He wasn't even on the street at the time of his death. They fired into the bar directly at him. Oh, shit. So finally, on April 29th, 1971, Rolling Stone printed Hunter S. Thompson's article. Well, this is like a, is a, is a teaser, not the whole article. It was a teaser, and this is uh, little bits and pieces of that teaser. No. Oh, actually, sorry, sorry. Uh, it was called "Strange Rumblings in Aztlan." That's the title by Hunter S. Thompson. Sorry. Strange rumblings <laughs> in Aztlan and the murder and resurrection of Ruben Salazar by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Savage polarization and the making of a martyr. Bad news for the Mexican American, and even worse news for the pig, and now the new Chicano. The rise of the battles local, brown power, and a fistful of reds. Which side are you on, brother? There is no middle ground. And I think that's, I, I included that because it, it's such an important statement. Like, this is happening now. Which side are you on? Like, you, there's, you have to choose at this point. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like politics. You're on the, You're on the reds. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, but, though, the whole article was never published. Um, so I, I really wish he had been able to dive into that. But as we're about to talk about, understandably, it's probably more dangerous to print the truth. So 
although the article was never published, um, while covering the story, it became more and more apparent that this truly was a straight-up murder by the state, which led to the pair becoming more and more paranoid because, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but trying to make issues like this public historically doesn't go well for the author. When you try to unmask certain truths, usually you don't make it out. Mm. Weird. So, (laughs) how weird. It's crazy how that happens. Yeah, just irony, I guess. It's just circumstantial. (laughs) Just such coincidences. Uh, So, they decided it was time to take a break and head out to Las Vegas to cover the Mint 400, which is how we ended up with the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So, the Mint 400 is an off-road off-road yes in case you didn't know now you know yeah Anyways. so that that part at the very beginning where they're sitting at the beverly hills hotel talking about some shit uh they are actually hiding out <laughs> trying to you know because they're getting closer and closer to a full-on fucking cover-up so they're like you know what we should probably head on out and do this thing for sports illustrated that they're wanting me to do and so they did and that's we've got this great story from fear and loathing in las vegas so the thing is, Oscar had no idea Hunter had written that book until a week before it was due to release, and Hunter's camp feared a lawsuit from Oscar's camp because of the crazy way Dr. Gonzo acted with all the drugs and alcohol-fueled shenanigans. But in reality, Oscar took issue with the book because Thompson had referred to him as a 300-pound Samoan. He was more upset about having his ethnicity changed than anything else. Because honestly, to, to uh, Oscar... He, that was more or less what happened with Dr. Gonzo was more or less what happened. So he's like, yeah, that, that stuff happened. It's you calling me a 300 pounds Samoa that I had beef with. So I can see that. Yeah. I mean, and it, uh, Oscar <laughs> realized though, that um, at this point it's a week from printing. It's not really feasible to go in and change every time, every time he was called a 300 pounds Samoan. So instead Oscar decided he would let it go if Hunter agreed to use a photo of Oscar on the back slip of the book that clearly stated that Oscar was, in fact, the inspiration behind Dr. Gonzo. And actually, Hunter's attorneys didn't understand why Oscar, another attorney, would purposely involve himself with a character like Dr. Gonzo. Because, again, that dude is crazy in the movie, in the book. And so, like, they were about to not do it. They're boss like, no, we're not going to associate you with this crazy drug-fueled character. And then Hunter was like, no, just go ahead and do it. So they did. And Oscar dropped it. However, Oscar, Oscar saw an opportunity to further his own agenda when he talked Hunter's publishers to cut into cutting him a book deal to which they ended up agreeing to. And I'm glad they did because even though I haven't read them, the two books he wrote have since become required reading for Chicano studies. He wrote the first book pretty much immediately after getting his deal in 1972, and that book was called Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo. His second book was released in 1973, and that was titled The Revolt of the Cockroach People, which that was largely about his defending the uh, East Side Trece and you know his involvement with the murder of um, Salazar. And just everything he went through as a as an attorney for the uh, Chicano movement. Now, in 1974, for some reason, after such a storied life, he made his way to Mexico and ended up in Sinaloa, Mexico. 
and the last person to ever have any contact with him that we know about is his son who spoke to him on the phone. And the last thing he said was, I'm about to board a bowl full of waste, no? What that means, that's up to you to decide. But that's actually the last concrete thing we know about the whereabouts of Oscar Zeta Acosta. And I'm of getting course, getting in a bowl full of cocaine. <laughs> basically. And I'll be on my way home. And, and, and of course, see you when I see you. <laughs> over the years, there have been many alleged sightings of the brown buffalo, and these claims actually come from all over the world. It's not known whether he's alive or dead, but it's presumed he died. Theories about his disappearance range from this just being a depressive episode due to his high intake of drugs and alcohol and go as far as he was assassinated because of his rising political power. His family, however, had just accepted that he's no longer alive, stating, We don't speculate anymore. We simply accept that the messianic messianic bison's fate remains one of the more schizoid mysteries of American subculture. And to end the gnarly story of Oscar Zeta Acosta, I will leave you with this quote by Oscar's friend, Hunter S. Thompson. There he goes. One of, one of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live. Too rare to die. <laughs> and that's the story of uh, Oscar Zeta and his random disappearance at, a, at the height of his rise, I think. So, yeah, I thought that was a trippy story and uh, honestly yeah. an incredible life. It I, is. I really found that interesting and I want to see that movie now. Like that. You've never seen it? Oh, my God. Shut up. So, Emily, yeah. going to end, yeah, end this story in this episode? There you go. Yes. God's uh, own prototype. So, my mutant. Okay. And too weird to live, too rare to die is said by a lot of people now. That was said live, that was said about the brown die. buffalo. Was. <laughs> All right. So um for my mysterious disappearance, um, mysterious circumstance story, whatever, um, I chose the story of Elisa Lamb. And Elisa, also known by her Cantonese name of Lam Ho Yi, was a first generation <laughs> Chinese. Canadian, born in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on April thirtieth, nineteen ninety-one. Do you have to say all that when you describe Canada? Oh. Is that like how they actually say things? Well, I guess it would yeah. be, well, so be El Paso, Texas, USA. States. Yeah, yeah. I just realized that I sound dumb. Sorry, go on. Um, no, it's not really. Dumb her is, we don't her say name United States ho. when we say <laughs> Gulfport, Mississippi. We don't say that. Like, so yeah, <laughs> I get on that, huh? yeah. <laughs> Will still over there giggling to himself. Bless his heart. Um, so she was born, uh, April 30th of 1991 to immigrant parents that left Hong Kong in search of a better life as a lot of people in that um, time did, but she was a student at the university of British Columbia. Um, but records from the university show that she was not enrolled in 2013, which is when the story takes place. Um, Elisa struggled with depression and other mental illnesses and used the internet as an outlet to express herself without seeing a therapist or writing in a journal because she did not like her own handwriting and therapists were expensive. So true. in mid 2010, she began a blog name. Is it Etherfields? Etherfields. Etherfields on a website called Blogspot. Um, she posted her thoughts, feelings, pictures of models, fashion, and all things mental illness. 
And in early 2012, she wrote about a rough time that she was having after she was, she was having a rough time in life after what she called a relapse that caused her to have, have to drop a ton of classes and leaving her feeling so quote unquote, utterly directionless and lost. She titled her post. You're always haunted by the idea you're wasting your life. And that is a quote from novelist Chuck Palahniuk, my favorite author. And I believe that's from the book Diary, if I remember. Ooh. <laughs> Dropping knowledge. She used that quote as as an epigraph for her blogging venture. What is epigraph? That's that's like the structure word. of your um like blog post. Yeah, like to describe like her how her blog is going to be about or what it's about or how she feels about it but it's like a uh, description okay. of of the actual the intro, intro to the blog yes. Yes. Okay. so the overall feeling of the what overall, this blog yes. is going to be about yes so you being haunted by the idea you're wasting your life yes so two years after starting that blog she ended it and switched to tumblr under the name nouvelle nouveau yeah and continued to use the same quote by chuck palinick palinick so nouvelle nouveau so you what's it's french but nouveau is new so nouvelle is what uh nouvelle is like a book is it a little like novel yeah new 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 novel like new me i think is what the gist was maybe but yeah i think um, the 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 name it's like new new book new start something along those lines probably also and i apologize for reading so quickly um i'm feeling slight rushed because we did waste a lot of time but um i don't want it to seem as if i'm not interested or um rush emily rush I'm go. Not, so. now um, go boom go anyways um she continued to use the same name or same quote by chuck um as her epigraph for her tumblr page as well and as not many people knew i guess publicly or possibly even privately um she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression sometime earlier in life like as a teenager and she'd been prescribed several medications for mental health issues like wellbutrin lamictal uh i think that's effexor seroquel and also adderall according to her family and they also reportedly kept her mental illness private inside their family but she was trying to get i guess more comfortable with the idea of speaking more publicly about it which is why she was creating these posts and was very open online with her thoughts and feelings on that. So, okay, God, real quick. So, Nouvelle mm-hmm. Nouveau, uh, I just looked it up because mm-hmm. it was very, it, I knew there was something weird with it. Um, Nouvelle Nouveau mean the same thing. One's feminine, one's masculine. So, uh, the article that I looked up says that uh, she might have meant um, this was the old me and this is the new me. Uh, but they literally okay. both mean new, but Nouvelle spelled slightly different could also mean a piece of news. So, I mean, it could be a double entendre, but it could also mean like new me type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it could, like, I, could, I think it could kind of go both ways, like what you're saying. I, I think it is She's an entendre. But... Dante- yeah. So, anyways, um, her family stated that she had no history of suicidal ideations or attempts, um, although one report claimed that she had previously gone missing for a brief period of time. But Elisa had a history of not taking her bipolar medications and as a result on several occasions had suffered hallucinations that would cause her to hide under her bed for refuge and she was hospitalized at least once for these episodes. But her family says no no record of mental illness? 
Yeah. Well, not, I guess, not yeah, probably. Like, trying to hide I mean, it. obviously there's record of it because she's on medications for it. She's right. had to have seen a doctor. And I think they're downplaying it. I think mm -hmm. it's part, probably part of the Chinese culture, just like yep. it is with the Mexican culture, at least that I personally know of. You don't really talk about this shit. And if someone asks, she's like, no, she's fine. Fine. What are you, what are you talking about? No. No, those yeah, med medications? No, that's, that's no, not for mental illness. Get yeah. out of here. Like, in, I mean, there's some, you know, countries and uh, ethnicities or just cultures, I guess, as a whole, who don't, you know, recognize mental illness at all. Like, they just, it's taboo to even speak about it. Like, you, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't, right. you know, Sprite and Vicks will fi fix you kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so uh elisa was 21 years old and wanted to travel and she planned a little trip um that she was calling the west coast tour and had been posting about it nonstop on her tumblr page she wanted to stop at san diego san francisco los angeles and santa cruz and it was um something that her parents were very against but she promised that she would contact them every single day and again like i said she was 21 years old um, so it's a little odd that her family would be so apprehensive to her doing it, but it also kind of makes sense with knowing now that, you know, she had had episodes in the past. She had not taken her medications. She'd had hallucinations, hospitalizations, and did suffer with mental illness that they did not publicly discuss or, like I said, even privately amongst their family and friends. But they were very apprehensive to let her go, but they did. And she traveled alone on Amtrak and inner city buses. And she visited the San Diego Zoo and posted photos that she took there on social media. And on January 26th, she arrived in Los Angeles. This timeline right here confuses me a bit because there are two different sources that I got most of this from, which one of them is the documentary on Netflix. And the other one is just different internet um, Articles. articles yes so piecing those all together um this one states that she arrived in la on the 26th but the movie stated that she checked in after two days of being in la she checked into the cecil hotel um which is near downtown skid row on january 28th so that leaves two days in the loop like in the you know when where was she where did she stay because from the video or from the movie point it seems that she arrived on the 28th and checked into the hotel the same day she arrived because where would she have slept for two fucking days? Now, I don't know. No. I don't know if it's because we do this as a hobby and I know a ton of stories about things that have gone wrong, but I mean, I couldn't stop her because she's 21 and she can do what she wants, but I would, I would also not be comfortable letting my kid go down on buses and Amtrak's to visit West coast America. Yeah. No. I mean, I don't, I don't feel that. Yes, like I thought it was a little odd, you know, at 21 years old. Yeah, that's something. But clearly, your parents had a reason for being apprehensive to it. But also, it's a completely different country. They're not Canadian or American, like so. They're you know already apprehensive to that culture anyway. But right, yeah. he had significant mental health issues and had been hospitalized and had. They had reason to worry, and I well, feel I mean, it was weird then, like, regardless that she was able to, or not, I don't want to say allowed or able, because she's, like I said, 21, but yeah, it is an odd a, okay, situation to go. Opposite, if I, we had a 21-year-old daughter 
going to Canada, I'd also feel apprehensive. Yeah, I uh, wouldn't want her to go alone. I would say that you need to go in a Yeah, a I think that group or, or something. At least, yeah. That's yeah. just odd. I don't ever feel but, that I would be okay. Even as a 36 year old woman, my parents would not, I don't feel they would be okay with me going. Yeah, I think they only let you go places because I go. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not. <laughs> you have a man. Dead you? serious. Like, my parents yeah. don't, you know, like, feel comfortable with me going places like and i don't like to drive at night just i mean obviously we probably cause, sorry, my driving yeah yeah driving general aside but just traveling wise my parents oh we don't want to talk about that going. Okay. <laughs> no i'm just saying driving aside they have other yeah. reasons for concern so yeah anyway so like i said the confusion there on the days um could be nothing, could be something. Uh, I'm going with nothing, and I'm just going with she checked into the Cecil Hotel, which um, if you don't know anything about that place, it is a shithole of shitholes, and it's one of the shittiest places you could ever pick to stay. Um, just to put a little <laughs> little pin on point of perspective, uh, Richard Ramirez stayed there during his uh, year of terror. Good. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good place to be. It's a and, good place um, to be. And actually, uh, Season 5 Hotel of American Horror Story is completely based off the Cecil Hotel. Yep. Yeah, and just True like story. that, watch the very first episode of that uh, disappeared or crime something. I don't remember the Lisa Lamb one, but a Lisa Lamb one. But it's very um, what the fuck? How's this place even open? Kind of thing. Like you just mm -hmm. are constantly going, what the fuck? What the fuck? So there were multiple sources um, with differing answers regarding her stay at the hotel, like I stated, and one source. One source says that Elisa was initially assigned a shared room on the hotel's fifth floor, which was room 506, and it was a female bunk bed room. And another source states that her roommates complained about her, about what the hotel's lawyer would later be described as, quote unquote, certain odd behavior, and that Elisa was moved to a room of her own after two days. So, which that would have been January 30th. I don't know if maybe this is the differing timeline from the 26th to the 28th or whatever, because in the movie part, they never stated that she was moved. Um, they said that she was in 506, which was a female bunk beds. They had a communal bathroom and all of that. So I'm not really sure. Yeah, so, because the Cecil Hotel is a flop house. Yeah. So according to Amy Price, the manager of the Cecil Hotel from 2007 to 2017, I think, is that 10 mm -hmm. years? Yeah. Um, she stated that at the time of Elisa's disappearance, Elisa was leaving notes for her roommates that said, quote, unquote, go home and go away and would lock the door of the room and require them to give her a password for entry. And a few days before her disappearance, um, Elisa attended a live taping of Conan and Burbank, but was escorted off the premises by security due to disruptive behavior. Um, so... Oh, she's a red flag, red flag after red flag, and also I want to go see Conan. <laughs> I want to see yeah. Conan live. Yeah, very, very. I've much only seen so, one. Like, I've only seen one show live, and that was uh, "Let's I've Make a Deal." With, Penn and Teller. Uh, that'd be great too. Oh my god, that'd be great. Let's, let's make a deal. With, um, no, Penn and Teller. No, fuck. Let's make a deal. Pen and Teller. Oh, let's make a deal. Fucking what's his name? Wayne Brady. Wayne Brady. Yes, Wayne Brady. Yeah. With the let's Dave make Chappelle's a deal. Let's make a <laughs> deal. Anyways, okay. Elisa Lamb. So Elisa made sure to keep a promise to her parents and called or text them daily. And she also, like I said, posted regularly on the internet to keep 
and kept a good digital footprint of her travels. And according to multiple sources, she checked into the Cecil Hotel on the thir- on the 28th of January, as I stated, and was last heard from on January 31st, 2013, by her family. On February 1st, 2013, LAPD's elite, elite, I say in quotations, like, I don't know how elite they, they are, but mm, they're, they're not. They're whatever. Um, they're case crackers. They were the robbery and homicide detectives um, were assigned her case after she was reported missing on the 31st. And this is also a conflicting date um, thing to her family may or may not have reported her on the 31st. And then they didn't do shit about it until the first, which it's just a day I get. You got to like paperwork and all that shit. But I'm not really sure because like I said, differing stories, differing sources, whatever. But there were approximately 18 investigators on the case, and they immediately sprang into action and coordinating with the family back in Canada to get them to the United States and get a timeline nailed down about her every move and to possibly retrace every step and lead them to finding out where she could possibly be. The hotel's general manager, as stated, Amy Price, said that she remembered Elisa checking in on the date of 128.13, which I said also a little confusing from the 26th, but we'll go with the 28th for now. And she stated to, poli- to police that um, Amy, that that Elisa was supposed to stay approximately four days. Elisa was supposed to check out on February 1st, 2013, but of course we know that's when she went missing or was reported missing and they took the case, but she did not. So she did not check out and the investigators went to check her room and learned that the stuff in her hotel room had been bagged up like all of her belongings and they put them in storage. And this was just a huge fucking red flag for me. Like this is the day this girl's supposed to check out. You've bagged all of her shit up and you've put it in storage. And apparently the storage of this place is like filled with shit. So they only are required, or I guess their rule is they keep your shit for 30 days. If you don't come back, throw it away or they sell it. But nice. Hang out. In a missing case, (laughs) yeah, in a missing case situation, or in a situation where you are very familiar with your hotel being the shittiest of shit, and a lot of shit goes on there, crime of all sorts, and that's your protocol is to like sleep the fucking room, get the shit out, and don't even. Yeah, despite their reputation, they are a business. They need that room. It wasn't the room though. Bag up your shit and get the. So like there were people. And also, you didn't pay for the days in the movie. In the movie part, they do not state that there were even bunk mates in her room at all. Okay. I got that information off multiple well, you sources. Didn't, you didn't pay for the rest of the days. Get your shit and get the it's fuck true. out. It's a business. I'm gonna bag up it's your shit. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just saying like with fucking basement. That that's a red flag <laughs> with a place that I feel like is... you've owned a hotel before. I have. <laughs> get the fuck out. I'm gonna bag up your shit. We're gonna put it in the fucking basement. You have 30 days to get it. If you don't, I'll auction it it off. I don't give a fuck. Anyways, (laughs) Emily. So, anyways, the investigators (laughs) went to get her shit, um, and they were they had to get it um, in the basement. In the basement where it was sold. So she left behind her business to run. (laughs) (laughs) She left behind her beloved laptop that was her outlet to the internet therapy she needed. She left her prescription medication, her wallet, her glasses, her clothing, and pretty much everything else she would have needed if she were going 
to check out of a hotel and leave. The employee who bagged her stuff stated that the room was messy, but it didn't look overly destroyed. Um, they didn't suspect foul play and there weren't any signs of forced injury in the room, which I thought was a little odd because like I said, at this point, I'm still believing that there's multiple people, bunk beds and if there's multiple shit, like, I don't know. So Hint, there's not. the forced injury thing, I'm not really sure about whatever. So um, I don't know how many bunks were in the room either or how many roommates or anything about that because they don't specifically state that. But the last person to apparently speak to her was the bookstore worker near the hotel who stated that she was very lively and outgoing while shopping for gifts to bring back to her family, even questioning whether these books would be too heavy or fit in her bag and be easy to travel with. Um, at this point, LAPD detectives, LAPD detectives have combed the hotel and gathered all of the camera angles, I guess they they can. Um, some of them were CCTV and some of them were um, loop record, loop recorded. So they had to get the cameras and footage as quickly as possible, but they discovered that most of the cameras were grainy footage, terrible angles, and they knew at that point that they would have to literally sit and comb through every minute by minute of this footage and try to find her and retrace her step. During this time, they there have been flyers made and hung up everywhere around the hotel by her family who flew into LA once she was reported missing. And from the day that she was reported missing, which was on 2-1 to February 6th, LAPD searched quote unquote, everywhere they could with probable cause in the hotel, meaning they did not search every single inch. And that meant that there were tons of areas, including many, many rooms that were not checked. They were only able to enter rooms that were empty or if someone said yes. So I believe 60% of the rooms or areas of the hotel were not checked in those first five days of her going missing. February 13, 2013, the LAPD released the last reported video footage of Elisa Lamb to the public. The camera footage was taken on January 30th. 31st, 2013, and in approximately two and a half minutes of footage, Elisa Lamb alone makes unusual moves and gestures. She is seen leaving the elevator at one point while its doors remain open, even after she appears to have pressed every button. When the doors fails to, fail to close af after she returns, she leaves. The doors close later. Just very odd behavior. Once the public got a hold of the footage, the theories began to come in by the hundreds, and everyone had their own version of what they thought was going on. But once her mental health, mental illness background was made public, a lot of people seemed to point to the possibility of her having a manic episode or a psychotic break. People even speculated that the videos had been tampered with due to some parts looking slowed down or glitchy, which was actually just the way that she was moving and her actual behavior. At yep. this point, the police knew that she never left the hotel and it was never seen on the camera. As it was never seen on the camera, cameras thus began a more in-depth search of the hotel. At the same time as this is going on, the LAPD went on attack alert as there was an alleged cop killer threatening to kill all cops until he was dead. So that took 14 of the 18 to detect. Is that Dorner? 18, yes. Christopher oh, that Dorner. is Dorner. Yeah, that was, that was a crazy story. Oh, yeah. That's a crazy-ass fucking story. That's a crazy so, story. Man, we can go on a fucking whole-ass episode. Well, we're not. Fucking we're not. Half. Yeah, the whole episode. So Anyways. that took 14 of the 18 detectives off of Elisa's case, leaving only four to pretty much start from square one to hopefully find this girl. They knew they needed the public's help, which is why the footage was, was released and why the public was given more information than they usually would have been given. They truly had no other choice but due to lack of resources. <clears throat> and I remember I was working at Chili's. I just moved here 
I was still living with roommates in Mississippi, and I remember getting home from Chili's and immediately turning on the news to watch Dorner's chase and then watching them burn him oh, down. Oh, fuck, dude. They fucking burn him alive in that cabin. Yeah, they burn he, him alive, man. Hell yeah, dude. He can fucking roast. Yeah. So, he, pulled, he pulled up to two cops in Riverside mm-hmm. and shot them in cold blood. Didn't yeah. I, know. I remember he... Didn't they have any he clue that he was wanted. He just pulled up next to him and fucking ex-cop? shot him in the head. Yeah, he yeah, was ex- a cop. Ex-LAPD. Yeah. yeah. Dorner's out on the loose. Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> um, during the search for Lisa, hotel guests began complaining about low water pressure, and some guests later com- compl- later claimed that their water had a black color and had an unusual taste. Ugh. Hmm, weird. Why yeah. was that? Strange, yeah. On the morning of February 19th of 2013, Santiago Lopez, a hotel maintenance worker, found Elisa Lamb's body in one of four 1,000-gallon water tanks that were located on the roof. Those were the tanks that provided water to all of the guest rooms, a kitchen, and a coffee shop. Gross. Yeah. Mr. Lopez was checking on the tanks after the guest complaints, and he could see through the open hatch that Elisa Lamb's body was lying face up in the water. The tank was drained and had to be cut open since the hatch was too small to fit the equipment needed to remove her body. February 21st, Los Angeles Coroner's Office issued a finding of accidental drowning secondary to a bipolar disorder episode as a significant factor. That is insane to me. But the full coroner's report was released June of 2013 and stated that Elisa's body had been found naked, but clothing similar to what she was wearing in the elevator video was found floating in the tank of water, and it was covered with a sand-like substance. The report also noticed that her watch watch and room key were also found with her. Aliens. Elisa's body was somewhat decomposed and bloated. She was mostly, mostly greenish in color with some notable marbling on her stomach and torso areas. She had skin separation that was pretty significant, and there was no evidence of physical trauma, sexual assault, or they suicide. So pause there. Remember that. I don't quite know how they can rule out suicide, though, because if she got in the tank with the purpose of drowning, there mm, might not be flashing because there Because there wasn't a bullet wound in her head. So that's why. Anyways, so I don't quite know how they can roll out because they don't know that she did not get into the tank with the purpose of drowning herself or maybe she was going to go for a swim and then got tired no and didn't know how to get out. No one fucking kills himself via Either drowning. Way. So her toxicology test showed trace traces consistent with the prescription medications that she was prescribed and they were and that were found with her belongings along with prescriptions along with those prescriptions there were also non-prescription drugs such as Sinutab and ibuprofen found in her system and there was a very small quantity of alcohol, about 0.02%, but no other illegal drugs were found in her system. The investigators and experts did state that Elisa couldn't have been taking her prescription medications as they were prescribed because the concentration of them in her system was much lower than it should have been if she had been taking them as she was supposed to. They aren't sure if she was just under-medicating or if she had just flat-out quit taking them altogether. I still have so many questions and feel like most of the world following the case at the time, did too. The investigation had determined how how she died, but it did not offer any closure or explanation as to how she got into the tank in the first place. The doors and stairs that access that hotel's roof are locked with only staff having access and keys. Staff stated that any attempt to force them would supposedly have triggered an alarm, but I'm not convinced this shithole had that in-depth of a security measure in place. No, they definitely didn't. 
and the public being involved mm, the public, no public being involved gave a lot of different theories that the police might not have thought about and might not have been told by the hotel staffing at all for the sake of saving their own asses with OSHA or LAPD. People combed the blueprints, security footage, and even went to the hotel to do their own investigations at this point. It was found that the hotel's fire escape could have allowed her to bypass the security measures. The police even brought in dogs and her scent trail was lost near the window that connected it, like the connected fire escape. this fire escape to the roof. So that's plausible. Thus leading the, um, the public to further investigate it themselves and really give this story the traction it deserved. A video posted on the internet after Elisa's death showed that the hotel's roof was easily accessible via the fire escape and that the two lids, two of the lids on the water tanks were open. All things that nobody on the case was able to find out or find or point out themselves, which is just insane to me. Like the police never were able to like find that out or if they did, they just never put it in the reports. Followers of the, the of the theory that the elevator video shows she was under the influence of legal drugs were not dismissed just because there aren't weren't any drugs in the toxicology screen. Instead, people were suggesting that drugs in her system might have been broken down during the period of time her body decomposed in the tank. Noted again were the very low levels of her prescription drugs in her system compared to the number of pills left in her prescription bottles, which were recovered from the storage. And that covered the assumption that she was under medicating or had recently stopped taking her medication for the bipolar disorder, which might have led to an actual psychotic episode, which led to her doing odd things like getting in there. Final autopsy report and its conclusion Conclusions were also questioned based on incomplete information. For instance, it does not say if the results of the rape kit and fingernail kit they were even processed. It also stated that there was subcutaneous pooling of blood in Elisa's anal area, which some people suggested was a sign of sexual abuse. One pathologist noted it could have also resulted from bloating during the body's decomposition and that her rectum was also prolapsed. That does seem odd and less likely to just happen spontaneously, but I don't know the actual level of decomp she was in at the time of the exam. So as I stated before, as they said, no trauma, no rape, and no suicide, all of that was ruled out. They're now backtracking as these final reports are coming out because they were released publicly at this point. So anyways, since her death, her Tumblr, her Tumblr blog was updated, presumably through Tumblr's either Q option that allows you to post automatically, allows you to publish posts automatically. When the user away, her phone was never found with her body or in her hotel room. So someone could have stolen it and continued posting things for her. Someone could have hacked her account and done it, or it could be through the Q, they don't know. Nor is it known where these updates actually related to her death, and I'm not sure if that's ever been figured out. That's creepy, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine just creepy. sitting there one day scrolling through your shit and seeing your your daughter, your friend, your sister, whatever, in a post like that. Yeah, that would freak me out. That is, that is freaky. In September of 2013, Elisa's parents filed a wrongful death suit against the Cecil Hotel, claiming the hotel failed to inspect and seek out hazards in the hotel that presented an unreasonable risk of danger to Elisa and other hotel guests. They were seeking unspecified damages and burial costs. The hotel argued that it could not have reasonably foreseen that Elisa Lamb might have entered the water tanks, and since it remained unknown how Elisa got to the water tank, no liability could be assigned for failing to prevent it. In 2015, the suit was dismissed, which is insane to me that the hotel is a shitbag place and has been since day one. 
they should be held to some sort of damages for the family, in my opinion. So that's the story of Lisa Lamb and the Cecil Hotel. The whole story is crazy, but I have to say the most disturbing part to me is the fact that the entire hotel used water for nine days that had a dead body floating in it. She was floating in that thing for nine days. Not only did it taste bad, but it was also discolored. I would want to puke because I smell it's everything. Gross. So there's no way I could have it's even disgusting. tasted it before even smelling it. That is fucking some gross. Some of the people who stated that their water was black were also people oh, that were stating God. that it tasted bad too. So not only did they see the color, they probably <laughs> smelled it, but they were also drinking it. But also, I'm if really your water is black, don't drink it. Come on. Right. That tracks to the folks that were reporting it, it back too. Is the, these are crackheads who are like here for the night hold, because am the dollar. Am a bat? And am I beating a horse that is already dead? This is nonsense. Yeah, the whole the whole thing's nonsense. I, if, I'm if your water tastes fucking weird and it's black, don't fucking drink it. I don't. Yeah, it's almost. It's like it's crazy because it's almost as if the hotel should have had measures in place to prevent this kind of shit from happening. They they can yeah. sure and, and they it's nine have, days. Yeah. No one no one went to go check know, the water no tanks for nine days. For, that's over a week of no inspection of any of their. That's what kills me. Property. Like, yes, thank you, Mr. Lopez, for finally getting up there on the roof and going to look at the water tanks, regardless of whether there was access to it or not. By Elisa was able to get there. Not she got there. Well, people that's, who should who have keys. On. People yeah. who have keys and are supposed to be up there should have been up there the before is, nine yes. days. The especially with the missing reported. person. It, especially with the missing person. The discolor, every... the discolor was reported three days, I believe, after. Okay. And the taste and... Um, no, the discoloring of the water was three days. The be taste a couple and days, smell yeah. was, yeah. I believe... Left, <sighs> that makes me sick. Not, so what, what, that makes so it was like the stomach. first day. What grinds so my gears... What really grinds my gears is people thinking they're entitled to some sort of like reparation or a, a civil lawsuit against something where your kid or your loved one was a fucking idiot. Okay, that, yes. That, and I don't that, want to make it seem like I was in agreement in agreement with the family on that. I agree with what, you. That's what I don't agree me. with the entitlement. I agree with you. But at the same time, if I, have a sign I do feel says, the hotel should say, yes, maybe we should do a little better next time so this doesn't happen. Or maybe well, we should have done better 762 times before now because all of the other shit that's happened in our hotel that's kept us in the news. I think the, the point I'm trying to make is you, you can't foresee all of these things fucking happening. Guess what? Not only was it accessible like so because they just didn't have lids on it. I'm telling you that nasty idiot proof. Yes, 100. Yeah. percent Why can't we talk about the fact that the two of those water tanks? There's four of them. Two of them didn't even have the lids on there. So those are safety measures for people who aren't having a mental health crisis, who are still drinking up their unsafe drinking water because okay. birds have shit in it. Uh, birds have died in it. Birds are you know feasting in it. Whatever. They're supposed to be locked covers on top of them and they don't even have the lids on them at all. Uh -huh. So that has nothing to do with her. She didn't even nope. get in one of those. She got into another one that had so a side hatch open. So that's not even part of the lawsuit. That's that's a OSHA no, lawsuit. The, that's the lawsuit not a wrong done and over death. with. But what family, by the way, dismissed the lawsuit. Okay. So let's just so they, they so okay, so the family knew better. They just no, so the they family, did not the want, family knew no, that it no, was a no, 
The family did not want to come back to America and have to deal with this any longer than they were already being put through the ringer because they have lost their daughter and they just wanted to move on. In in their standards, like you're asking. They actually could have won and they were going to have the hotel was going to settle out of court and for an undisclosed um, Mm -hmm. sum of money and money, way more money than they had before. And the hotel would have. They don't that have to was admit guilt. They don't have to admit guilt. It's like, why do we sign we it? I'm to, sorry, I don't care what, sorry, we have what to put legal process you're going through. Do not go through. on the fucking roof. If you sign a, if you're sued and you sign and settle out of court, you're admitting fault, whether no, you want not. to admit that or not. Yes, no, you are. You, you don't give you don't give people money that if you're not at no. fault. You're you're trying it's, to it's, shut it. No, it's the cheapest way of getting out of it. No, exactly. It's the cheapest way of getting out of a lawsuit. That's fine. That's your opinion. Either it be and frivolous or not. No one, it's the cheapest no one way of getting goes out of the lawsuit. court and doesn't fight for shit that they're not. They mm-hmm. and it costs it costs the company more money to try and prove their innocence than to just pay out a certain amount of money. And well, the hotel pay. knew they were wrong, and they they admitted it. Just that's the it's, dumbest it's, mindset I've ever heard. Not everyone has. I'm gonna sue everybody mindset. This is a happening. right and wrong. That's what, that's okay, but I hate court case aside. I think it's just more like why not be safe than sorry. I mean, even fucking yes. McDonald's had I to put a sign on their coffee I, because a lady burnt her no, leg. I'm not even saying like, that. I agree. Coffee's hot. I'm saying coffee's it, hot. It's just it's to protect dumb, themselves it's as a, a company. It's a dumbass fucking lawsuit to try and sue. I went nowhere. You went nowhere. We're given, we're given access to a roof. No one should have access to that hotel's roof. It's not safe, so therefore you shouldn't have access. Regardless, the hotel should do basic things to keep their hotel guests and themselves safe. Regardless of what reasoning, the fucking door needs to be locked regardless. Whether it's for people who can't read, people who are having mental health crises, or people who are just fucking idiots and want to fucking go up there and jump off the roof. Regardless of the reason, those are measures that should be taken. Exactly. Like an exactly. es- like you go up an escalator, that that fucking shit breaks and you break your fucking neck on it. What do you put a sign? Hey, use caution when using the escalator. Yeah, literally, literally yes. Signs on every single escalator. escalator has a little sign. And then and then, and then you break your caution. neck, you break your neck on it, and then you sue them. Yes. Escalators have signs that say use caution. Doors should be locked and- if you don't want people to access whatever's behind said doors. And again, all these things do is to protect the company from people trying to sue for easy money or whatever you think they're doing. And it's just that that's for the company's own protection. And Lisa Lamb might be alive if their fucking door was locked. Simple and as that, man. It's amazing that every other company can follow those instructions except this one fucking hotel. Now, yes, there have been instances where people have gone around security measures and, you know, purposely done that in either you know, just to take a selfie on a fucking hotel roof where they jumped off and whatever. I'm not saying the hotel's responsible for that. If you've actually got secured measures in place and people go around them, then yes, 100%, that is on that person. But at bare minimum, you lock your fucking front door every night because you don't want someone thinking they can come in your house, correct? Sure. Okay, so a hotel having a door locked would mean do not enter. Even mm-hmm. if there's no sign or if there is a sign, there could be 1,500 signs. The fact is they had zero basic measures to prevent this from happening. And I'm not just saying one door wasn't locked. They had no security system in place whatsoever to keep one her off the roof, out of the 
the tanker off of an uh, external fire escape that's supposed to be locked on the roof too. None of that stuff was done. These are basic things that you would expect to go to a hotel today, check in, and if the rooftop door says no access, it would be locked. You wouldn't be able to access it. Shouldn't be able to access it. Shouldn't be, yes. Well, well there's a button at the top of your screen that says uh, outro. Push that. Yep. All right. Oh, God. On that note. That was fun. Friends after this, but... Oh, that was fun. Guess um, what? Don't climb on fucking hotel roofs. True. Don't have access to your hotel roof at all. Lock your door. Shit. No one's going to sue for stupid shit. That's dumb. Don't be... We'll have a, we're going to put a couple of polls mm-hmm. up on the page, I think. Don't Here's be on my side. for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm going to have I feel like people on my side. I don't feel like you will. I hope no one's going to be on your side. There's going to be a lot of people on my side. I really don't think, <laughs> we'll I don't think so because I think that you're focused so Anyways, heavily Emily, on the Where can you find these polls? Where can you find us? Um, Facebook and Instagram is at Bloodthirsty Times. Um, you can find us on TikTok and Twitter, which we've been slacking on the TikTok at Bloodthirsty Pod. And the Twitter. And the Twitter. Um, you can email us at bloodthirstypod at gmail.com. We would really love it if you would check out our instagram facebook and please like share comment post even if you don't like um the vote for podcast, me share please it, this um, time if you listen this, this time, far please please let us know your me. opinion on what we're having vote what's happening for me. we need to know vote for me